Brian, welcome back to The Goods Film Podcast. This is a supplement to episode 110 of The Goods, and that was where we talked about used cars, the Robert Zemeckis film. We talked a little bit about Robert Zemeckis leading into that. So now, Brian, we are going to count down our top five Robert Zemeckis movies. So as we talked about, I did catch up with with his movies, again, by my count, 21 Robert Zemeckis films in this pool. I have now seen them all. So, Brian, let's lead with some honorable mentions, because I do have more than five movies that I want to shout out. So are there any outside of your top five that you feel are worthy of of attention in some way? Yeah, I've got one or two. I would say that before our talk today, I think I've watched... 14 of the films. Did you say there was like 21 or 22? Yeah, by my counting, 21. Okay. And that's including Welcome to Marwin, which I threw on like right before we sat down today. And I think I need a little while longer to think about where that one falls. I definitely had a lot of thoughts. That would be an interesting episode. So Hunter Allen is the name of someone I've befriended online. Um, he's a different hunter from the one who recommended us used cars, but I've traded some messages with him and he really likes Zemeckis and he is very high on, uh, welcome to Marwin. And I think knowing that he appreciated it, but that also there were a lot of bad reviews for it made me receptive to what makes it so polarizing. And I definitely have a lot of thoughts on it. That would be an interesting one for us to pick at some point, And it would be fun if I could convince hunter to join us for that one if we did talk about that at some point that would be good i think we should pair it with the documentary that it's based on oh yeah just so we have that experience too i have not seen that one yet the one i'm going to give an honorable mention to is beowulf from 2007 so a a lot of movies come out around christmas time Uh, i think of this one as a january movie just because that's when i saw it it was still in theaters january is like the movie graveyard there's usually nothing good in theaters in January, and, and that happens to be when my birthday is. And so a few times I've taken my friends to the movie theater on uh, January 20th or around about that time. And we have seen movies like the Jim Carrey series of unfortunate events movie. We've seen uh, Tim Burton's Big Fish, which is kind of interesting. And one year we saw uh, Beowulf by Robert Zemeckis in 3D, of course. And this was like my favorite 3D theater experience. Zemeckis has definitely got a finely tuned 3D sensibility. You know, whether it be the cow catcher poking your eye from the Polar Express or all the stuff we commented on in 2009 Christmas Carol. But in Beowulf, it's just firing on all cylinders. You got like spear battles, and jump scares where the monster like leans out of the theater screen so uh, it was entertaining if nothing else for that i think i would give it a three out of eight because the motion capture animation just doesn't look very good across the board but you know it's it's more about the experience as a whole also he does like weird revisionism with the storyline like it's not your father's beowulf yeah uh which 
I feel like Beowulf is not a well enough known story to go off the beaten path with it and still call it just Beowulf. It's like you gotta you gotta let people know that you're not given the straight story. Otherwise, they're gonna lose points on their English quizzes. Fun fact on Beowulf: it was written by Neil Gaiman, or at least he was a co-writer for it of the the adaptation. Oh wow! Neil Gaiman is a famous comics writer and he's written some novels too i wrote american gods yeah i I was kind of morbidly fascinated with beowulf i have it pretty low in my overall zemeckis ranking but i did dig how he got completely nude for the the early key set piece battle with between beowulf and grendel where they always like put a leg or uh something right where the groin would be so you know it didn't need to go into a hard r it could just be a a pg-13 although the version i watched had a nude fairly thorough model of angelina jolie um so i was surprised they got away with the pg-13 well she had like scales so no nipples yeah it was the one i saw was borderline i do know there was an unrated cut is one thing i saw so maybe that's what i saw oh okay all right well i probably didn't see that then the one I saw, she looked like an Oscar statue. Like she was all gold. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there was some of that in the one I saw. So maybe we did see this. I don't know. But yeah. Yeah, it just looks like a PlayStation 2 game to me. It's like that would be a really fun PlayStation 2 game to play where you're battling an ogre in a castle and stuff. But as for a movie, it was just kind of cheesy. Also, like it wanted so hard to be macho and cool, but it just does not look cool. Like the maybe it did in 2007. I remember my friends thinking it looked pretty cool, but man, I, I just thought it looked kind of like uh, cheesy, I guess. But uh, good honorable mention though. So yeah, it's always fun to say Hrothgar. There are some good names in there. The other thing I want to say ahead of time is that the three Back to the Futures would get my top three slots probably. So just as you excluded Toy Stories from your Tom Hanks consideration. I'm going to limit somewhat arbitrarily my Back to the Future coverage. Gotcha. I wondered if you might do that. I'm going to condense it. The trilogy is one pick for you? Basically, yes. Okay. Well, then, I was not expecting my honorable mention to appear on your list, but it might appear on your list. So I have really a tier of three at five, six, and seven, and I can't really decide how I arrange these three. And those three are my number five, which I'll get to, Back to the Future Part 2, and my official honorable mention selection, I guess I'll call it number six for me, is The Walk. I just found this one really fascinating and pretty rousing. So I'm going to hold off on on talking about that one. If we do kind of a recap at the end of a couple things we might have missed, then I might shout that one out some more. But that's my honorable mention, The Walk from, from 2015. So let's dive in to the top five. So do you want to go first, Brian? Uh, sure, I could start off. So at number five, I do in fact have The Walk mm. from 2015. Okay. I saw it when I had a pass to the theater for the whole year and just saw everything that they showed. And so I checked this one out. And when I saw it, I think it was a second run theater. So I saw it in 2D, just standard, you know, flat. 
And I immediately thought, I got to get the 3D Blu-ray for this movie because it's tailor-made for it. I just, I told, I could tell the whole time. It's like, this is supposed to be in 3D. Because this tells the story of performance artist Philippe Petit, a French guy who, I think he first walked across the towers of Notre Dame in Paris. And then he learned in 1973 that the... World Trade Center was being built in New York. And just from seeing a picture of it, he's like, I got to walk across between those two towers next. You know, forget the fact that it's like 1,100 feet in the air. I just got to do it. And he, yeah, he's a tightrope walker. So he's like a circus guy. And you know, I like circus movies. And he gets trained to tightrope walk by this old French circus guy. And then he goes and he teams up with these these other folks who help him pull off. It's basically a heist movie, but they're plotting a victimless crime. Like all the beats of a heist movie are there because they got to sneak into the tower, which is still under construction. They got to evade all the guards and set up all the rigging, which is necessary to do a tightrope walk. And then ultimately, like, the sun rises and he steps out onto the wire. And gradually, people at the street level become aware that he is walking on this tightrope. I mean, it's it's a very digital effect. It's still effective. At one point, a bird flies over and it, like, lingers on this stupid fake bird that's watching him. <laughs> the bird was pretty bad. I wish they didn't have that. <laughs> That is true. Really draws your attention away, really draws attention to how fake everything is. It's like, just don't have that. It's like at a dramatic moment, too, yeah. Right. But everything else is pretty cool. And what really gets me is that, spoilers, guys, if you want to check this movie out and get the full effect, just tur turn, turn me off right now. But the magic of the movie is that he brings back the Twin Towers, guys. That's what is the real magic act going on here is that Robert Zemeckis has brought the world trade center back. But then at the end, Petit gets apprehended, but it, it's just a very minor slap on the wrist because people realize that sure, I guess he's breaking the law, but nobody got hurt. And it's kind of a silly law because he's just putting on a performance for everybody. And so the whole thing, he's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I know we got more movies to hit. But Joseph Gordon-Levitt also narrates, doing this kind of silly French accent. And he says that after it was all said and done, the, like, building manager of the Trade Center gave him a pass. And that, normally, these passes, they have an expiration date. But on mine, he crossed it out and he wrote on it forever. And then the camera zooms out. And it just lingers for a while on the World Trade Center towers standing there. And you're left with this idea that you could visit them forever, but we know that actually you really can't. Only now through the magic of movies could you visit them again. Yeah, I actually liked how he handled that. And I would say I normally am not in the can for uh, Zemeckis tastefully handling things. So I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, I think it was the perfect way to do it, to acknowledge the fact that the movie is about the towers and not hitting you over the head too much with it, but still letting you go out on that. And I was crying. And then when I got the 3D Blu-ray, I was crying again. Yeah. Really good ending. It's a touching ending. 
the moment where I got choked up is just like the pure euphoria at having completed this task that is really the, the movie does a good job as presenting it as impossible. 100% wish I could have seen it in 3D. Maybe that's one we can watch in 3D sometimes. Mostly because my favorite kind of 3D effect is when it makes it look deeper in the screen. I'm less wild about when things pop out at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that's kind of part of the 3D gimmick, but this one is all about making the depth of the the, the height of the tower via depth on the screen seem so huge. And you can get some of that in 2D, but it's just not the same as it would be in 3D. So I would this maybe is one we can watch sometime. Right. Yeah, I mean, the whole time you're like waiting for the moment when he's going to look down and then he does. It's like, okay, I got to get this Blu-ray. The other thing I will say about this one that I liked is it's one of a few movies since he kind of gave up his mocap experiment from the 2000s where he's reckoned with the impulse to create and to entertain and how some character in the world uses that as like a outlet for processing the world around them in some ways. So in The Walk, it's obviously he's obsessed with these death-defying stunts that ultimately get him fame. Return to Marwin has a lot of like a guy who feels compelled to create, to process the world around him. And even honestly, the beginning of Pinocchio. The beginning is the best part of Pinocchio when we have Tom Hanks kind of ruminating on his life and he makes all these clockwork objects to basically deal with what we come to learn is some unspecified trauma and darkness in his life. At first, it was actually kind of interesting, and then it just turns into a crappy remake after. I haven't seen the 2022 remake, but I did recently watch the 1941 or 1940 Pinocchio um, because you had reviewed that one as well on your site. Mm -hmm. And I realized that both Back to the Future and Pinocchio start out with a wall of clocks as the first shot. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. I also watched the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio recently, and that one is really good, but it's really sad. It's it's much sadder than the other Pinocchios and like more fascinated with the question of what makes something alive, I guess, and where the soul of a thing lives. But I would recommend it. It's pretty good. <clears throat> I have a draft of a review to, to get up there. Yeah, I'm curious to check that one out. So my number five is one of two on my list that I had not seen before this week. And that is, I'll just say, I have four t- Zemeckis movies at an exceptionally good or a tour de good, and then a few at a six, a very good. And this one is the top of the sixes that I, I have. And that is Death Becomes Her from 1992, which is like this really weird satire slash screwball comedy slash horror movie about this pair of women played by Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn who become obsessed with maintaining eternal beauty. And in the middle of them is Bruce Willis, who's kind of playing the lover who bounces between them throughout the film. And I don't want to say too much about it because part of the fun is just like learning how the premise kind of unfolds. But they do come up with a sort of supernatural way to prolong the life. And Zemeckis really probes how one could uh, be forever healthy and young and immortal, but still like go through traumatic things and, and what that might look like with some, 
you know, this is kind of when he was really starting to get into the effects with some really surprising effects from 1992 that are just very uncanny. Right. So I know you said you don't want to spoil. They can stay young. They can't die. There's like a spell cast on them, so they can't die. They can still, though, experience grievous injuries. Correct. Yes. So this was the other one I considered watching immediately before we recorded today because I have a strong sense that I will like it. I've never seen it other than it gets brought up all the time in history of special effects documentaries. Okay. Yeah, there's some wild ones in here. Yeah, there's how did they do that moments? And I won't dig into it too much, but I've seen some of the work and it's pretty cool. So this is on my next to watch list. The The story itself is kind of shaggy. And I got to say that there's a fine line between satire and then just like having these horrible, shallow, misogynistic characters. And this movie definitely treads that line because Bruce Willis is definitely depicted as more human as either of the women. And that gets literalized to some extent. But man, I was just vibing with the energy and the freaky effects and the production design's really good. It's like, it kind of feels almost like a horror movie, like a castle and stuff. It's just really cool shot. Cause they're like in a big house too, right? Yeah. Yeah. At least what I've seen is it, all the bits I've seen were in like a big mansion and I think they fall downstairs or something. Yeah. So that's my number five death becomes her from 1992. All right, Brian, what do you have at number four? All right. Number four, I have who framed Roger rabbit which is an effects powerhouse. It was a key early moment in the Disney Renaissance because it was like a team up between Spielberg's Amblin productions and Disney animators. There's cameos from all kinds of cartoon all-stars, Disney and Looney Tunes stuff and Fleischer Studios with Betty Boop. It's like... Toy Story before Toy Story or Wreck-It Ralph before Wreck-It Ralph where it's all the various studios lending characters and the I said magic trick earlier here the magic trick is that humans are coexisting with cartoon characters like Mary Poppins but a whole evolutionary step power of magnitude above that because it's like Humans manipulate the cartoons, and cartoons manipulate the physical world. There's, like, weasels carrying around guns, and, like, Roger smashes plates on his head and, like, actually picks up a plate and breaks it. It's really cool. Yeah. Like, really seamless illusion. I agree. Kind of mind-blowing how good it looks. It's crazy impressive. Bob Hoskins does a great job acting against a cartoon rabbit that, that was obviously not real there really there because he's a cartoon great performance by him this is a really fun one yeah i suspect you might be saying some more things about it so all i will add is that it falls back for me a little bit because i find the plot kind of confusing it's definitely a film noir story and everybody is intricate as that implies yeah. There's intrigue and betrayals. And I mean, the whole the whole thing is in the story of the title, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? So somebody has set him up to take a fall. And 
I think I said it back when we talked about DOA so long ago that film noir tends to make me feel stupid. <laughs> like, I don't know from moment to moment what's going on, and I am sometimes scratching my head, and I feel duped. Right. Yeah, definitely a hard-boiled story of lots of betrayals and mixed-up identities and stuff, for sure. So, all right, so at number four... I have the other movie that I had not seen prior to this week that's on my top five, and that is the science fiction epic Contact from 1997. Have you seen this one, Brian? No. So this is a gap for me. Some of the people in the Discord rated this one highly, so I am curious about this one as well. Yeah, so this is kind of a brainy alien first contact story starring Jodie Foster, who works at SETI. And she's like impassioned about aliens. But what's really interesting about the movie is it ties this theme of science versus faith into every single plot point, because we learn that part of the reason that she's obsessed with aliens is because she kind of connects that to this idea that you can hear people who are separated from you who are distant from you on these radio signals, because when she's a kid, she does that. But of course, those are like, people who live a few cities over. But when her father dies, her first impulse is to turn on the radio and listen for him. So it's like a, a blending this very scientific concept with this like faith question about, is there an afterlife and is there a God and how would God communicate with us versus how are aliens out there and how would they communicate with us? And it just builds and builds Matthew McConaughey is in there. And then the last half hour of this, really surprising, goes to some trippy places. If you're looking for like a standard alien blockbuster, this is not going to deliver it. If you're looking for something that will make you think more about the concept of aliens and extraterrestrial life, then this will be really satisfying. I give this one an exceptionally good. I have it at number four. It's a little long. It's about two and a half hours. And just like Forrest Gump, it feels a little bit longer than that to me. It's on the slower side, but really terrific film that I just thought got better and better as it went along. And is surprisingly thoughtful, I thought. Not not as fun or funny as, as other Zemeckis movies, but out of his kind of more serious films, my favorite. So that's my number four. Brian, what do you have at number three? So number three, I have Forrest Gump. I talked about it when we did our 100 films, but... The special effects here are mostly in the form of incorporating Tom Hanks into the historical footage, which is cool, but I actually quite like the story here. The idea that it's a biopic of a guy who can't really sense his own significance. He's kind of drifting through these historical events and playing a key role, even though he doesn't really comprehend his own importance. And... In that regard, it's almost like a biopic of America itself, like the everyman. Yeah. And it's polarizing. Yeah, this is a movie that, depending on the day and the mood, I feel differently about. I feel like every time I watch it, I'm going to feel differently about it. Um, I wrote about it on my uh, review site at one point. It's sprawling and overstuffed. Parts of it really drag for me, and it really bugs me how the counterculture is just hand-waved away. Like, to me, that's a part of the American experience, but I feel like it's really dismissive of it. 
then again, it it really is incredible filmmaking and it kind of sets up what becomes one of Zemeckis' trademark things, which is like brain dead obvious and on the nose, but still like emotionally effective needle drops. It's like some song popping in to make you feel a certain way just all the time. And it's almost always a famous rock song or 60s pop song or something. So uh, good pick there. So um, not on my top five, I will say. I Last time I watched it, I had it at a five out of eight. And again, I feel like I could give it a totally different rating if I watched it again today. At number three, I have the film Castaway, Tom Hanks movie. Really terrific one-man showcase of a film. Um, I suspect we're going to be hearing about it in a moment here as well. But um, the things that are my favorite about it are just that it's it's a real spotlight for Hanks to live out this extreme scenario and really make us empathize with it and understand it and think through the parameters of it. And just terrifically composed by Zemeckis really is peak powers as a filmmaker. And the reason I don't have it higher than this the thing that holds me back just a little bit is I still don't know what to feel about the ending. It's just, you know, I'm going to spoil Castaway here. It's a 22 year old movie, but it confronts what happens when someone who gets stranded on an island for a ridiculously long time or stranded just from a human experience for a ridiculously long time in general, what happens when they return. And the movie spends a lot of time on this, really thinking this through. And I, I don't hate it, but it's just not like the promise of the premise to me. And I, I can't decide how much I like it, I guess. So um, I still think it's an exceptionally good film. I have that. I have cast away at number three. Brian, what do you have at number two? I've also got cast away here at number two. And uh, yeah, not a whole lot of actors can carry what's essentially a last man on earth story where it's just the one dude and you're watching him work through the process of survival. It tackles some interesting questions. Like you think if you're on a desert Island and all you got to eat is coconuts, well, that won't be hard, you know, just stick a straw in it like Gilligan. But you actually spend a few minutes of montage just with Tom Hanks trying to figure out how do you get a coconut open? Like, it's way harder than you would actually think. And then he's got, like, random objects that came in parcels because he's a mailman and he was in a mail plane. And, like, what can you use everyday items for to help you survive in ways that you might not at first imagine? And, yeah, the ending is a little strange. I think if they were going to spend more time grappling with, like reinserting yourself and reassimilating into culture like the timing would need to break down differently it would need to be like half and half or something whereas i don't know we get like 15 minutes or something after the fact and i think we could stand to spend a little more time there you're right here's a tidbit that i read about this movie during a q a session at usc robert zemeckis was asked what was in the unopened package so there's a runner I'll just throw in here where he opens the packages that he's supposed to deliver to try to survive. But the first one he finds, he never opens. He just lets that one stay there and he brings it with him when he goes back. So he was asked what's in the unopened package. And Zemeckis replied that it was a waterproof solar powered satellite phone, which I thought was a 
a pretty good F you to the whoever asked that question and was afraid to think about it in symbolic terms, I suppose. That made me laugh. Yeah, I guess it's that he wants to have a mission, something to do when he gets back. You know, not if he gets back, but when he gets back, he's got to deliver this package. So, yeah, it's him holding on to his humanity and his hope in this physical form. Right. All right. At number two, I have Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I watched this one again this week. I had seen it before, but it had been probably a decade since I had seen it or close to it. And it was way better than I remembered. If I made my top 100 now, this would be on my top 100. You're right. It like leans into the noir, but it's like a funny, goofy parody of a noir. And yeah, it does like the noir stuff where you can't quite follow the plot and who all the characters are and what their relationships are at any given time. But it has this interesting undercurrent of like racism where there's this whole complex relationship between the tunes and the humans. Also like some thoughts on the exploitative nature of show business and tying all that in with the noir. And then just having all of that be on this incredible technical feat that, I mean, still feels like probably the best we've ever seen of hand-drawn animation mixed in with humans and just bringing that there. And man, I was kind of blown away. I'm on a very high seven exceptionally good almost a masterpiece the only thing holding me back is there's i would say maybe too much of zemeckis just kind of showing off with all the the stuff he can do with it um but it's a pretty it moves real quickly and it's it's just got so much interesting stuff and it's dark and funny and really scary at the end when the villain finally gets revealed um man i love this when i watched it this week so that that is uh who framed roger rabbit at Number two for me. One last Roger Rabbit thought is, you're right, the dip is really terrifying. Just what a, what a horrifying thing to see in a kid's movie. Yeah. That you can just dissolve and permanently kill a cartoon character. I'm like, I don't want to show this to my kids right now. I think it's too scary and intense and apocalyptic <laughs> for them. <laughs> and then right. when you get to Toontown, it's kind of mind-blowing. It, it really does well, like uh, what what happens in a physical space, but that's also a cartoon world that has all this cartoon logic in it. And it's really good payoff for all the talk of Toontown that leads up to it. Mm -hmm. I've heard a theory on the, the racism bit that it's not a coincidence that they kept calling him Toon when that rhymes with a slur for a black person. So that there might have been like intentionally bringing in some racism parallels there yeah we might need to talk more roger rabbit at some point maybe we'll bring it to the pod sometime it could be an interesting discussion so might have to just know that we both we both were rated highly it's a good movie yeah but my number one i don't think it's going to be too much of a surprise i've got back to the future one standing in is kind of a representative for the trilogy as a whole because i think the story works well over all three there's a ton of callbacks and echoes and there's always a McFly, there's always a Tannen. But the first one, I mean, the script is so tight. It's like the key time travel movie still to this day. I hope they never remake it. And uh, it's just uh, like peak Zemeckis, pretty early in his career. But I think it was lightning in a bottle. Just all the talents who were involved in it, like Zemeckis and Gale and Spielberg, all have their voices on display. 
good performances. I mean, I really like uh, Michael J. Fox in this movie and Christopher Lloyd. Even people like Crispin Glover, who <laughs> you get the sense that this is not an entirely stable individual. So that the fact that he's had a somewhat spotty career since kind of makes sense. Although he is in Beowulf playing Grendel. Yeah, that was pretty funny that he brought him back. And I read a quote is that Zemeckis said, Crispin Glover had no idea how to behave on a movie set. But with motion capture, he doesn't need to be on a movie set. So I could still cast him, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I got at the head of my pack. What about you, Dan? That is also what I have at number one. I have Back to the Future, the original. It wasn't until you were saying that that it occurred to me some of the parallels between used cars and back to the future, both of them have a lot in the way of setup and then payoff on something later. It's like you encounter something and it seems kind of random, but also it kind of works for the story. But then later in there, it's it, all these breadcrumbs add up into these really interesting things and twists and payoffs and stuff. I, I just think that uh, this is one of the ultimate popcorn movies. It's so funny Great, great adventure, exciting, terrific Sylvester score. I absolutely love Michael J. Fox as a lead, and I absolutely love Christopher Lloyd as the co-lead with the the ultimate Mad Professor performance as Doc Brown. Cool set design, great job contrasting 55 and 85. Really makes it feel like a, a period piece for both periods, even though it was made contemporary with 1985. I just think it's it's one of the most entertaining movies I've ever seen. I have it as a tour to good. And I had it somewhere in my top 25. I think I might have had it in the top 10. I can't quite remember. But it's definitely up there for me in terms of my favorite movies. So, And I know it is for you, too. Something that always surprises me is that like when you see Leah Thompson, especially, but also um, the guy who played Biff... Like, you see them now, and I'm like, wow, they look really good. How are they so young? And it's it's because <laughs> I am always thrown that they were always young. They were always the same age as uh, Michael J. Fox. Yeah. But it's just because when you first see them, they got all the pancake makeup on, that you <laughs> think they were older, but they weren't. And it's convincing, yeah. And they cast good people who, like it was easy to plausibly make them look old, but also to plausibly look young. It, it was just good casting. And I think you're right that he does some really interesting technical stuff, like with the makeup that was before he had really leaned into having, you know, out there effects, but still, um, I mean, I guess he had already done Roger Rabbit, I think, or was, no, Roger Rabbit came after that. So, yeah, so this was like maybe the last one where he was kind of not quite so married to having something like truly bleeding edge and innovative every single film right it's not like overwhelmed by the visual effects yeah it doesn't ever feel like a technical exercise more so than a piece of storytelling i guess the way that many of his later films do so so that is my our top five zemeckis films and i do want to say even though i didn't have any of them up there well i guess i had the walk as an honorable mention but i think he had a pretty solid stretch after he gave up the mocap he, he did this movie called Flight with Denzel Washington. Yep, I've seen that one. It has an upside down plane. That was a pretty cool effect. And I thought that one was solid. I, I obviously didn't have it in the top five, but I thought that was pretty good work by uh, Denzel in that one. And, and there was a few fun Zemeckis things in that. 
Allied, it's a little on the slower side. It stars Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard, and they play a pair of spy lovers who eventually come to doubt each other's allegiances. And uh, it's in World War II, and it's it's on the slow side. But I thought it was I thought it was quite good. But yeah, so he's been honestly he's hung around more than I expected. I expected after seeing Pinocchio to not like any of his recent stuff, but I would have to say only Pinocchio is an unmitigated stinker out of out of his post mocap work. <laughs> the Witches is not too far behind it. Yeah, I've liked some of the recent ones. I mean, I I included The Walk. Uh, Marwin was quite interesting. Yeah, we might have to talk more about that at some point. I have a lot of thoughts on that for sure. Yeah. There was like a cameo at the end of the Back to the Future time machine all of a sudden. Yeah. What I was telling you, Brian, is I think that this is his equivalent of the Fablemans, which was the recent Spielberg movie about why he creates art. And this is like Zemeckis's deranged version of that, but also told through like a, a gnarly biopic. He confronts all of the criticisms of his work and also just it's just a bizarre film, man. It's so weird. Um, mm-hmm. and like he, he weaponizes the way that people say that the mocap always looks uncanny by making mocap be a part of it. And the uncanniness being a key element because it's supposed to be dolls come to life. Yeah. Everybody is dolls. And I really liked it. Anytime one of them would die and they'd like lose the spark of life and fall over and be extra rigid. It was funny. It always made me laugh, but I think we could have a pretty interesting convo on that one at some point. I opened it up to the listeners to contribute lists, and here were uh, a couple. Uh, anyone listening now could join our Discord at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. And, uh, you know, if we do another top five, I'll probably open it up to the crowd again, um, and we might read yours. So for uh, we had Gavin, who's appeared on the pod once. His top five was Back to the Future, Roger Rabbit, Romancing the Stone, and... Uh, I guess the other Back to the Futures, his filmography is thinner than I thought. Uh, we had Tadpole give us Contact, Back to the Future 2, Forrest Gump, Castaway, and then he throws a vote out there for A Christmas Carol, which we talked about, and you liked a little more than I did, but you know that one's boosted because we like the Christmas Carol story. We also had Gargus offer the Back to the Future movies in that order, followed by Contact, followed by Beowulf. And uh, that is kind of what kicked off our conversation of Beowulf. But Gargus gets Beowulf in the top five. And then the last one I wanted to shout out is Hunter Allen. He's a guy that I've met online. I've traded some messages with him. We comment on each other's review sites every now and then. Really smart guy. He writes these incredible reviews. And he did an entire Zemeckis walkthrough and ranking as well. And he had uh, Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future, Back to the Future 2, Forrest Gump, and Castaway as his top five, with Castaway at number one. But he has Marwin at number seven. So he definitely is fond of that one at, at a nine out of ten because he does the out of ten scale. So anyways, that's all I got, Brian, our, our top five Zemeckis films. Awesome. Well, that was fun. And I think... Coming up next, we've got something interesting. So what have you got planned? Yeah, so we're actually going to have Gargus, who I just mentioned a minute ago, back on the pod. And we're going to be discussing two films. I don't know really anything about them, except they're both regarded as some combination of bizarre and bad. And they are Final Flesh and After Last Season. So, again, don't know anything about them, but... uh, (laughs) 
we'll see what this ends up being. And then, just as a taste of what's ahead, guys, after that one, the next episode where I'm going to be picking the movie will be my birthday episode. So that's coming up in later in January. And then we're going to be, I think, hitting a theme month, which I'm excited about, too. So we got some fun stuff on the horizon. But, Brian, this has been a real treat. Thank you for accompanying me on this journey. Thank you for Zemeckis-specting with me. Oh, yeah, it was fun. I've definitely got to check out some of the other Zemeckis films. And listeners, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week on The Goods. Bye, guys. Thanks. Thanks.